All right. Well, welcome here. We got a small audience tonight, but you guys are the lucky ones that actually get to hear the word taught because our internet feed is not working. Our internet's been out since Sunday, so we're going to have to record this and show it live for you guys that are watching at home. Welcome in this recorded, pre-recorded feed. We are doing everything we can to try to get the live feed up, but our hands are tied because the whole network, Verizon Network, appears to be out out here in Olney, so nobody's phones or anything are working. So we got to wait till they get that working before we can start going live again. But nevertheless, it's always the better option to come to church and experience the blessing and encouragement that can only happen when we gather together with other people. So, um, so that's the encouragement. I know some people can't make it, but we will do our best to get it uploaded as quick as we can. So tonight, uh, just to give you guys uh, an idea on where we're going to be at. This is our Signs of the Times prophetic or prophecy update night. And as I was praying, kind of leading in tonight, I felt led to do what I'm calling a, a survey study through the book of Daniel. Um, and so that's where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you guys to open up the book of Daniel. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have Bibles back there. I, I don't know if any of the 10 people in here need it. You don't have to get up, Justin. But, um, uh, it's available for uh, anyone that, that wants it because I want you guys to read along because I'm actually going to try to teach through the whole chapter of Daniel, uh, Daniel 2 tonight. So the book of Daniel, if you guys aren't familiar with it, um, if you're newer to the Bible, it's a very practical book for us to learn from as Daniel gives us many great examples of what it looks like to follow God in our lives, especially when we say that Christianese term, uh, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, he gives a very good example of what that looks like, to not conform to what the world is that's against what God stands for. He does that. And it's also a prophetic book in that Daniel was a prophet for God who was shown and told things by the Lord that would happen in the future. Many things that he uh, was shown by God that accurately happened, just as he said already throughout history that have been documented, but some yet to happen. The book of Daniel often being called the backbone of Bible prophecy because it helps us understand um, or it ties to a bunch of other prophecies uh, throughout other places in the Bible, especially the book of Revelation. So it's kind of critical to know this to understand other prophecies, especially the end time stuff that's still to come. Um, this book also, because it's so predictive and so accurate um, in what it said was going to happen throughout history that actually did happen, that it's scrutinized by a, by a good amount of people um, that want to prove that it's fraudulent. That there's no way it could have been written when Daniel said it was written, which was around 600 um, B.C., because all these, there's no way somebody could have accurately predicted all the things that happened. So some people speculate that it was written like around AD 50, which is after a lot of the events happened, so that basically it was kind of post-written to account for these events. Now, the thing is, you don't have to work too hard to disprove that theory, because all you have to do is look at the original Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written um, and included the book of Daniel in 285 BC. So there's no way it could have been written any later than that. Um, and in that included, you know, there were events that happened after that, basically, that would have been accurately predicted as well. And then in addition, uh, historically, there was something documented um, when Alexander the Great was conquering his way through the Middle East. 
the historian Josephus recorded that the high priest in Jerusalem met with Alexander when he came there around 322 BC. Okay, so that's even before 285 BC. It's even earlier. But he met with the high priest in Jerusalem and the high priest took it upon himself to show Alexander that, hey, dude, you and your empire are actually mentioned in this Bible, in God's word. He spoke of you guys before you ever even came to power. And Alexander was so like moved and overwhelmed by that, he decided to spare Jerusalem because he's like, I better not touch this place because obviously they serve a pretty powerful God, all right? So that being another piece of recorded history that disproves this theory that somehow the book of Daniel was fraudulent or it was made up, that it was in fact predicting the future, all right? Something we know only God could do. That's how we know the Bible is the inspired word of God because of all the prophetic things in it that were predicted accurately way before they ever happened and then they happened just as they said so again with that we're going to do a survey through this book and what i mean by that is we're not going to go through the entire book especially tonight um but we're going to go through it in enough depth that help you guys understand the the prophetic sections of it what it's talking about what they mean and then we'll take some time to look back at how those prophecies relate to things we see going on in the world today that, um, you know, for those prophecies that still haven't happened yet, all right? So tonight, we're going to focus on the word because that's the foundation of what we believe. That's the most important thing, what we believe, not what people say is going on in the world, but what the world, what the word, God's word says is going to happen. And then next time we do a prophecy update, we'll take some time for questions and also just talking about some current events that are looking at what we see in Daniel 2 that still hasn't happened yet as they relate to that, like things that are in the makings, if you will. So just to help you understand, because we're starting in chapter 2, where we're at in Israel's history when this was written. And this should sound familiar. If you guys have been going to this church for a while, it was around when I first took over four years ago that we were going through the book of Jeremiah. So this kind of is at that same time, all right? So some of this should sound familiar. But this book, it was written around 605 BC after Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, kind of the the first recorded world empire that conquered the known world at that time, the power. He had attacked Jerusalem for the first time. And if you guys remember, it was an attack that the Lord allowed specifically because uh, the people of Judah, the southern half of the kingdom of Israel and their king Jehoiakim, he was a bad king, an evil guy. They were constantly in rebellion against God and his word. They had let idolatry get so bad that they weren't even worshiping God at the temple they built for him. And they weren't listening to any of the prophets that he sent to warn them to repent. Because guys, you are not listening to me. You're not following me. You need to turn around from this sin because it's destroying you. And they wouldn't listen to him. So he had to do something drastic to get their attention. And he did that in the form of allowing Babylon to capture them and take them into exile for a period of seven year, 70 years, which would be what was needed to get them to understand we were wrong, we need to return to God, and at that point he would bring them back into their land and restore them. That was his goal, okay? So that's kind of the history leading up to this. And um, in the first of three attacks, because King Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem three times, and in the first of three attacks around 605 B.C., he just he didn't destroy the city. He took like treasure and valuables. And then he also did something the Babylonians were kind of known for. And that is he took all of the 
the kind of the prime young men or, or the wise people, the smart people, the educated people, the people that were physically gifted, if you will. Because what the Babylonians would do is they didn't want to kill those people. They wanted to take them in, in like indoctrinate them, if you will, with Babylonian ways and train them up so that they could assimilate them back to be like leaders and administrators over their vast empire, right? So one of those guys that he took was Daniel, okay? He took a bunch of these Jewish men to come and train them and kind of instill them as as important people in his empire, okay? So Daniel was one of these guys. And Daniel was a man that we see from the very beginning of this book who's never willing to compromise his faith in God or what God's word says, no matter what, even if it means potentially losing his life. And because of that, God's able to glorify himself through him or basically show himself to other people in a really powerful way. And so he does really miraculous and powerful things through Daniel. If you guys are familiar, like one of those things is they go into the fiery furnace and they don't get burned up, right? Because he's not willing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. And then he's thrown in the lion's den later, and he's untouched by the lions. He's really miracle things, but what they ultimately led to were people saying, man, he serves the real God, believing in God, all right? So that was the goal. And we're going to pick it up in Daniel 2 this week. That's kind of where we're leading into. So let me pray one more time, and then we'll go through it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, thank you so much for your word. Thank you. It's all helpful and important for us to know this personally and understand this. Thank you for uh, the, 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 the details you've given us about future things because we know that, first, it's pretty cool that you accurately predict the future in your word. That's one of the many proofs that it's actually real um, because no other book in the world does that. But also because it gives us enough information to know, to look ahead, and when we start seeing things that are kind of going in the direction of these prophecies, we know your return is getting near. And that should make us excited. And it should make us realize that it's important to be about your business because time's short. And we want people that we love and care for to be saved. And so, Father, we see that even producing that in us now as we see the things going on in the world and we see that our salvation's drawing near, Lord. So we want that urgency to even grow to a greater degree, Lord. And that hope and that expectation as this world grows more uncomfortable of knowing that our true home is coming back with you and that's going to be shortly, all right, Lord? So we look forward to that greatly. So speak into each of our lives and encourage us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in verse one. So the long chapter. So I'm going to take chunks of it and then kind of explain what's going on. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's having dreams that are bothering him in some way as he's wondering, you know, what, what do these dreams mean? So much so that he's le- losing sleep over it. Can any of you guys relate to that? You ever had a dream and maybe you wake up and you don't remember the fullness of it and it's bothering you because you, it was something important or something that was really weird. Or maybe you do remember and you're just like, it's, I, I can think of numerous instances where I wake up and I know the dream's not real, real, but it was so scary or so like, like just like something you would never want to happen. It's bothering you. You can't go back to sleep, right? So he's having some sort of dream like that. All right. And he, what he does is he summons all, 
It says enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans. Basically, these are what would be considered like his wise men, his educated people, his smart people, the people of all people that should be able to help him with his problem of wanting this dream interpreted. So that's who he comes to. He asks, he brings to him to do that, to interpret this dream for him. And it says in verse three, and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, uh, the word from me is firm or basically listen to what I'm about to say because I'm not going to change my mind. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation or basically tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses, including your family, shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards in great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So the king's wise men come to him and tell him, hey, tell us what it is you dreamed and we'll tell you what it means. All right. And the king says, how about this? I want you to tell me what I dreamed first and then tell me what those dreams meant you know basically if you're so smart you should be able to do this and if you don't here's what's going to happen you and your families are toast they're going to die but if you do i'll reward you greatly so he put some pressure on him right i mean it's like don't say the wrong thing here because it's going to be a bad bad news if you do now it's hard to tell if he's kind of putting this on them because he doesn't remember all the details of the dream we can't know for sure but it does seem in the next passage when i read it you'll see this that maybe at some point he didn't really know if they were always truthful with him and what he was they were telling him and so you know this is one way he could find out because obviously he could tell them the dream and they could say oh it means this and he couldn't be 100 percent certain if what they said was actually truthful right but if they have to tell him what he actually dreamed then that's one way to verify for sure all right these guys know what they're doing they know what they're talking about if they're actually telling me what only I know, okay? So it's probably more of something like that. And it may seem like an unreasonable request to ask of somebody, but you gotta understand that these guys supposedly made their living off of talking to the gods or, you know, the spiritual world to get special insight and special information. So this is these guys' job to do this. This should be an easy thing. This is what he pays these guys for. So he's just asking them to do their job. And it goes on in verse 7 and it says, And they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time or you're basically stalling, all right? Because you see that the word for me is firm, that I'm not changing my mind. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. In other words, in the past, you guys have not always told me the truth. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Basically, if you could tell me what I dreamed, then I know that you're not full of malarkey. Like you're actually telling me what, I, you know, something that's truthful, you know, that you've been shown. Verse 10, it says, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with 
flesh. So it's interesting to me because they're not admitting that they can't do it. Instead, what they're saying is like, what you're asking of us is unreasonable, okay? And and they're trying to convince them it's unreasonable because basically this is only something that God, you know, they're saying gods, but this is only something a God can do. This is only something God himself can do. And in the process, they're not realizing this, but they're helping Daniel's case because when Daniel does it, you know, that is the truth. That's what he affirms. That's what he says is that I'm not telling you this. Only God can do this. God's the one that gives revelation or gives understanding of the things that people can't understand that shows truth. And he, I'm just speaking on his behalf. So they've, they've just attribute, they've just prepared the way for Daniel to say that because they've said the same thing that no man can do this. All right. Um, now something to note is that these guys, they practice things like sorcery, astrology, spiritual arts, which if you're familiar with the Bible, those are all things that we're not to do, right? Because they're demonically influenced and you don't want any part of Satan and what he has to offer. Okay. But what we see here is an example of even though Satan has been allowed to have some sort of power to do supernatural stuff, it's very limited. Okay. Because similar to what we see in Exodus, when Pharaoh's magicians have to try to replicate what Moses and Aaron are doing on behalf of God, they couldn't do everything, all right? And what we see here is these guys are unable to do what the king asks of them. But they even they acknowledge that God had unlimited power in saying that what we can't do, only God can, okay? But in their minds, a personal relationship to see that power could not be attained with God, according to verse 11, as they say the gods don't dwell with or have fellowship with people. But unfortunately, they didn't believe in the one and only true God that Daniel did, who would send his son, Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? God wants a relationship with us so he can do powerful things in your lives. These guys didn't understand that, unfortunately, but Daniel did. So verse 12, it says, because of this, the king was angry, very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill him. So the king, you know, is planning to go through with what he warned them. Basically, he's of the frame of mind. Well, if you can't do what I want, then what good are you? I'm just going to kill you all. You know, it's like I'll replace you with people that can do what I want. And unfortunately, that extends to Daniel and his Jewish friends that were also considered wise men being trained up for that in the king's court. All right. So he says, go get them all. We're going to wipe them out. Verse 14 says, then Daniel replied with prudence in discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Or basically, what is happening that he wants to kill all of us? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel wants to know, basically, why are our lives being threatened? He doesn't know what's going on. The captain of the king's guard fills him in and Daniel says, well, can I meet with the king? Can, can I give him an interpretation? Now, that took some faith to make that request, right? Because he doesn't know what this dream means at this point. He hasn't even brought it before God. He has no idea if God is going to show him that, but he's just assuming that, all right, well, I'm going to go to God with my problem and God is going to take care of it in some way or another, all right? And so he, in faith, says, let, let me meet with the king and I'll tell him what the dream means. So it says in verse 17, 
Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and uh, Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed in the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he goes back to his friends. He tells them the gist of what's going on. And he basically says, guys, we need to pray and ask the Lord for help. Otherwise, we're dead meat. This is not going to be good for us. Like, this is some earnest prayer, I would imagine, because he knows his life's on the line. And this shows us a good contrast between how those that know the Lord and those that don't know the Lord should react to adversity or hard situations in their life. You know, basically, maybe you guys have heard this before. Potential or crises don't make the man, but instead they often reveal the man. Or basically, when you go through something hard, that often shows where your faith lies or what's inside of you, okay? Because whereas Nebuchadnezzar took his problems with him to bed, Daniel took his problems to God. Nebuchadnezzar had a problem. He was worried about it. It was stressing him out. It was bothering him. He kept that problem with him. But when Daniel had a problem, he knew straight to go, I needed to bring this to God because I can't fix this situation. Only God can. I'm going to bring it to him. And that's how we should treat our problems in our lives as well. So it says in verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have not now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So God answers Daniel in his prayers, like right away, as during the night, God gives him a vision that shows him the dream and what it means. By the way, that's another great example. You've heard me say this before of how God so often speaks to me in the middle of the night. Here's another example of where he did it for somebody else. And I just say that because sometimes if you're anything like me, you wake up in the middle of the night, you can't go back to sleep. You're bothered by your back. You're bothered by being hungry. You're just laying there. You're bothered by something. And you're like, I just want to go back to sleep. Well, maybe the Lord is just trying to get your attention because he knows you're so busy during the day. You won't listen to him. And he's just trying to talk to you or he wants you to talk to him. So it's a good thing because we see that in scripture to just next time you wake up in the middle of the night, you can't go back to sleep. Maybe you just need to pray. Maybe you just need to talk to God. Maybe that's the only time of the day where he's got your attention. And so that's he desperately wants it for some reason. All right. So you see that here. And I want you to know how he, note how Daniel reacts to getting what he asked for for God. Because here's the thing, understand, he's being threatened with his life. Basically, he said, I'm going to go to Nebuchadnezzar and I'm going to tell him this dream. Um, and, and if for some reason I tell him something wrong or if I don't do this quick enough, he's already kind of put this degree that me and my friends are toast, that we all need to die. So I don't know about you, but my first response as soon as God gave me what I wanted, it might have been to run to everyone and go like, I got the answer. I got the answer. But he doesn't do that. He takes the time to praise God for answering his prayer. And I think that's so important, too, because if you're anything like me, it's like I can pray and pray and pray. But then when God answers those prayers, I don't take the time to acknowledge, oh, you did answer my prayer, Lord. Thank you. And it's so good to do that because it builds your faith 
to put credit where it's due. It's not like sometimes I just pray and then think things just work out because I'm not giving credit to where it's due. But that's not the case. I prayed and God heard me. And because he loves me, he answered that prayer in accordance with his word. And I just need to acknowledge that so I understand that next time I need to do the same thing and he'll do the same thing. I start seeing where those, you know, basically giving credit where it's due to who's actually taking care of me. That's the Lord. And that's what he takes the time to do here, all right? He takes the time to praise and worship God for answering his prayer, which is a great example for us to follow. And he does this even before confirming that what God told him was the right answer, which shows great faith in his part on God, all right? Because here's the thing. We can be, how quick we are to praise God can be an indicator of how great our faith is. In any given situation in our life, especially hard things, okay? And let me let me tell you why. Because if we don't praise him until we actually keep his we see him keep his word and come through for us, then our faith probably isn't great. If if in essence you know God's word, you know his promises, and you have to wait until after those promises have come true to give praise to God, that's not faith, all right? That's wanting to see things to believe, okay? But if you can praise him based off the promise alone, even before it's received, you're going through something hard and you're like, God says he's going to get me through this. God says he's going to take care of me. God says he's going to work this all for my good, even if I don't see that right now. If you can say that, and it it might mean it still feels hard. It doesn't mean that the, the difficulty goes away. But you at the same time are praising God, knowing that you're going to be able to look back eventually and he's going to be faithful, right? If you can do that, that's faith. That's faith. And that's what we see Daniel do here. Even before he tests out the revelation God's given him to see if it's right and Nebuchadnezzar's not going to kill him, he's like, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for answering my prayer, right? And that's the way we want to do. And, and we can do that, as I say so often, because his past faithfulness demands our present trust. God has been nothing but faithful to get you here to this point. And all you have to do is take the time to praise him when he answers your prayers to see all that past faithfulness. And it'll help you trust him in whatever you're presently going through. Amen? Amen. All right. So verse 34. It says, Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. That was basically a a name that Nebuchadnezzar had given to him. Like they named all the people they brought into their kingdom with Babylonian names. So it's another name for Daniel. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men enchanters magicians or astrologers can show the to the king the mystery that the king has asked but there is a god in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to king nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days or in essence he's told you the future your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these so daniel goes to the captain of the guard he informs him that Yep, I can interpret the dream. The dream, take me to the king. Captain rushes him to the king, and the captain says, "This guy can tell you." And the king's like, "Can you tell me?" And Daniel says, "No, I can't tell you." But here's the thing: I got good news for you. The Lord God has told me what to tell you. The Lord God 
is the one that reveals mystery. So things that we're always wondering about, those things, the unknowns, the what if, do I do this, do I do that? It's only God that can reveal that to you. And he's given me what that dream means because that's what he's doing to you. He's revealing to you the future. And I want you to note that he doesn't take any credit for this, all right? Because this is important because this is why I believe God uses Daniel in such a mighty way over and over again in his life because he never seeks to glorify himself. And because of that, because he gives all the credit to God, God is able to do these great things and people see that, man, this isn't a man doing this. This is your God that you believe in, which allows God to reveal himself to other people, which is always his heart. And it's really important for us to understand that because if you want to see God do awesome things in your life, it's simple. Don't take credit for anything. Just give him all the glory and he will most certainly do miraculous things in your life because he's going to use that to make you a witness for him so he can save other people. Amen? That's simple, all right? As I say so often, somebody gives you a compliment, that's cool. Don't be rude. Take it, but always redirect it to God. Hey, thank you very much. Praise the Lord. It's like what I've heard John Corson say. It's like chewing gum. You you can chew on it a little bit, but just don't swallow it, okay? It's not good. <laughs> all right, verse 29. It says to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Or in other words, he's just simply saying, I'm just the messenger. This isn't because I'm super smart or I'm super holy. Basically, God has told me what you dream so you could know it, but I'm just passing on what he's told me. And it says in verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked... A stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then the iron, the clay and the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors or kind of like the remnants of, of like wheat, just like dust, if you will. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel first tells the king what his dream included. Something that, again, he couldn't have known this without God's help. He basically told him what he dreamed at night, all right? As the, and the king refused to tell anyone that. So nobody could have known that except God, which gave credibility to everything else he said. Because basically he's like, I better listen to this guy because he knows what I dreamed. And the dream included seeing this huge, awe-inspiring image of a person, like a big, awesome statue, okay? And the statue was made up of all these different materials. It started out with the head being gold, and then the chest and arms were silver, and then the stomach and thighs were made out of bronze, and then the legs were iron, and then the feet were made of a mixture of clay and iron, and so one thing to note, and we'll talk about this a little more, is that there's a descending value in the materials, right? It starts out with a precious metal, then a little less precious, then a little less precious to something that's not really worth that much, right? You see this descending order. 
And while seeing the statue, Nebuchadnezzar sees a natural stone. And the idea with that that hadn't been cut by human hands, just kind of like a rough, raw stone, not like a cut certain like triangle or square, just but like a rough cut stone. And it hits the feet or the foundation of this giant, you know, awe-inspiring image. And as great as it was, the whole thing just shatters, like into fine pieces, like like just dust that blows away in the wind, so there's nothing left. And then the king sees this stone become in this like giant mountain that actually fills the whole entire earth. All right? And so now Daniel tells him the interpretation or what this dream actually meant. It says in verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. I like how he says we, because he's always like talking about like kind of like including God in this. All right. I'm going to tell you on behalf of God. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you. I like how he makes it clear. You're only what you are because God has given it to you. He has made you. You need to understand this, all right? But he goes on to say, in the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. So King Nebuchadnezzar, in the kingdom he ruled, the empire, the Babylonian empire, is clearly said there in verse 38 to be what that head of gold represented. He's like, that head of gold, that's you. That's your empire, all right? Now, the Babylonian empire, if you weren't familiar, was what uh, is referred to as an absolute monarchy, which basically means that there was one person that was in charge of everything. That was the king, all right? He had absolute power and authority, okay? There was nobody else that shared that power. He called the shots. Nobody else got to say, okay? Now, that is most closest to what God's ideal government is in the Bible with one big problem. It's not meant to be led by a man. It's meant to be led by the king of kings. Amen? But way back in the day, man got this bright idea and said, God, give us a king. We want to rule over ourselves. And God's like, that's not, I'm paraphrasing, that's not going to work out real good for you. Here's what's going to happen. And they just thought they knew better and said, I don't, we don't care. We want a king over ourselves. So God's like, all right, well, if you really want it, you can have it. And from that point on in history, look where we've gotten ourselves, all right? We want to be mad at the government. Well, this is what we chose for ourselves as people, and it just continues to degrade over time, okay? We're not good at ruling ourselves. But one day, God will come back and rule over us, or Jesus, Jesus, his son, God, will rule over us, and we'll get to that in a second, all right? But... Here's the thing, the idea that this is closest to God's ideal form of government, this is why a a large number of commentators, including myself, believe that that's why Babylon's represented by gold, which is the most precious metal, because it's the closest to what God's government is going to be like, what it's going to resemble as far as one person in charge, one in power, okay? Now, these three preceding empires mentioned may have been larger. We're going to get into these in a second, but they may have been larger or lasted longer, arguably looking at their years and like what they encompassed. But none of them had governments that had as much centralized power as Nebuchadnezzar did. Hence, 
it would seem that God deemed them inferior for that reason. And that's why you see the descending order of the the substances or the materials that the statue's made out of. All right. So the head's made out of gold. He says here that the head is Babylon, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, king represented by King Nebuchadnezzar. And it says in verse 39, another kingdom, all right, so another empire, if you will, inferior to you shall arise after you. This being in reference to the next world empire that came on the scene, which was the Medes and the Persians who overthrew the Babylonians in 530 BC. Now, they were more powerful but having said that, their government was what was called a constitutional monarchy, which basically the king shared power with a government or some other people. He didn't have absolute power, right? So in God's eyes, that was inferior. And so it was uh, a silver, made out of silver or represented by silver in the statue. But it clearly says it was another kingdom, all right? So the first kingdom was Babylon, represented by the gold. The second kingdom was this next uh, world empire and when i say world empire you have to understand the known world at the time where history was being written and stuff was in europe yes there were people that um native groups of other parts of the world but those weren't part of the known world okay the known world was a bunch of uh, places in europe where basically human population was spreading out so these were true world empires in that they were when Babylon, the Babylon was in control. They were in control of the entire known world. They could have said that. Um, the, the, the Medes and the Persians were, when they conquered Babylon, was in charge of the entire known world, okay? And then, it says, in yet a third kingdom of bronze, all right, this would be the, the middle part and the thighs of the statue, which shall rule over all the earth. Again, the known world is the idea. And this third kingdom that came along was the Greek Empire, which conquered the Medes and the Persians in 330 BC, led by Alexander the Great. And again, would go on to conquer all of the known world at the time. They were a true world empire. And that being considered what's called an oligarchy, if you guys don't know what that is, that's a form of government where you have a small group of people that control um, all the decisions, if you will. Okay, so again... Less powerful than the Mede and Persian government. Therefore, it's represented by bronze, which is inferior to gold and silver. And then it goes on. It says in verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Okay. The legs were represented by iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. This being in reference to the Roman Empire which defeated the Greeks and came after them. So historically, this is exactly how it went down, even though this was written hundreds of years before this order of events actually happened, okay? You had the Babylonian Empire that was defeated by the Medes and the Persians, which became the next world empire. Then you had the Greeks that defeated the Medes and the Persians, which became the next Roman or the next empire, world empire. And then you had the Romans that defeated the Greeks and became the last world empire that we have seen. All right. Now, let me talk a little bit about that, because since the Roman Empire fell up until present day, we have never seen another world dominating power. Okay, we've seen nations 
that have their own armies. And, and of course, there's always jockeying for who's the most powerful. But nobody's ruled the whole known world. Now, there's been plenty of people that have tried, especially you guys that are older and you've been through history. Napoleon tried. Hitler tried. Stalin tried. But none of them have been successful at taking over the known world. Okay? None have been successful, right? So um, you see after these four empires, there's a gap in time. One reason being that this prophecy is given in the context of the nation of Israel's existence, all right? That's who Daniel was from. That's who he's representing. And that's who God, God's speaking in those terms as far as the nation of Israel, okay? And in AD 70, the Romans destroyed Israel and it ceased to become a nation until when? 1948, right? When it was reborn in a day, which actually the Bible predicts as well. So there was a gap in time, all right? From AD 70 to 1948, Israel did not exist as an actual nation. But guess what? In 1948, at that point when Israel was revived, this prophetic clock of the Bible started ticking again. And that is when we see the beginnings of the formation of, of the last world power mentioned in this chapter, as verse 41 says, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, remember iron representing the Roman Empire, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle, as, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So these feet are made up of a mixture of iron, again, which represented the Roman Empire, which um, the reason, or in clay, basically you've got two different things it's mixed with, okay? Now, um, the re, for most commentators think because iron's mentioned again, that the Roman Empire, or this basically this last world empire that's talking about here, that appears strong on the outside, all right, because it's it's got iron, it appears put together, it appears strong, but it's really brittle, it's really weak. There's basically it's susceptible to being destroyed. Okay, that's kind of the idea is that's being presented with it being mixed with clay. Okay, um, clay often being representative of humans, like we're called jars of clay, if you will. So it shows our weakness, the vulnerability. It's not as strong as it looks. Um, but here's the thing, because it mentions Rome again, what commentators think, and this is what I agree with, is that this is like a revitalized Roman Empire, or basically that there is going to be a world empire that comes yet to come, because we haven't seen another one since the Roman Empire, that's going to come out of the same area as the old Roman Empire, right? Um, and, 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 and that, what was that? Wait, I was, I lost my train of thought, sorry. Oh yeah, here, here's what I was going to say, okay. And so after, going back to the, the prophetic clock around Israel, so after two years, after Israel became a nation again, so 1948, 1950, Here's what happened. Six nations came together out of what used to be the Roman Empire to form what was called the Treaty of Rome or the EEC Treaty, the European Economic Community 
treaty, this treaty still being in effect, this treaty being the one of the two most important governing treaties of what is now known as the European Union. Okay? All right? And hence, you saw the beginnings of a revived Roman Empire that has already been created. Now, not the exact one that this one speaks of because this one involves feet that have ten toes that speak of a ten-nation confederation that this ultimately this revived empire will consist of. And we know this because this number ten is often is is also reiterated in several other parts of scripture as an empire that's to come that's going to be led by the Antichrist. If you guys were with us in Revelation, you've seen these sections. I'm going to read them right now really quick, just so you guys can see what I'm talking about. We're not going to go into these sections as much detail. One of them is in Daniel 7. One of them is in Revelation 13. One of them is in Revelation, I think it's 19. But um, I'm going to talk about them so you can kind of see the correlation and see where people kind of tie the feet to with ten toes to the ten horns um, that are mentioned in these, okay? So... Daniel 7, 7 through 8. This is later on, and we're going to go through this in detail eventually when we go through Daniel 7. But just to kind of show you, um, Daniel 7, which it should be mentioned, Daniel 7 speaks about these same four world empires that we see here. But God's vision to Daniel shows them as beasts instead of an image, which is interesting. Because in man's eyes, it was a pretty impressive thing to see this this statue that consisted of these different world empires but in God's eyes that he showed to Daniel, they were beasts or they were horrible, vicious things that were causing destruction, okay? So in Daniel 7, 7 through 8, it says, Then in my vision last night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth. Iron, all right? Again, representative of the Roman Empire that we saw in Daniel 2. So it crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts and it had 10 horns. All right, you see that number 10 again. As it was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn, which is speaking of the Antichrist, and we'll kind of see the correlation here, appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. So this little horn, the Antichrist, takes out three of these other horns. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting Erically. The Antichrist is going to be human, though he's supernaturally empowered. And we know he's going to be boastful from parts of Revelation. I'm going to read those sections as well. Okay, So this prophecy in Daniel 7 that's also speaking about four world empires talks about this fourth beast that has iron teeth with ten horns like the lower part of the statue that had 10 toes. You see that correlation between those two. Are you guys following me or am I confusing you? All right. Now, just to mention, horns in this culture, when people use those, they use them to figuratively speak about um, countries and and people um, because when you think of a horn like an animal, it's a weapon, right? It speaks of strength. It speaks of power. It speaks of aggression. So they would use a horn to describe a country or somebody that had those similar traits. That's why you see it being used here to describe these empires, these kingdoms, if you will, that are going to be strong or they're going to appear strong and they're going to be aggressive and they're going to be angry like an animal that's running at you with its horns, all right? 
So that's kind of the idea with using the word horn there. And we see that in other places in the Bible. So going on in Daniel 7, 19 through 25, it defines what Daniel is seeing here, okay? Verse 19, it says, Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one so different from the others and so terrifying. It had devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws, trampling their remains beneath its feet. I also asked about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterward and destroyed three of the other horns. Daniel must have known that the best way to define the Bible is with, or the best way to define God's word is with God's word. So he asked God, please define what these things are, okay? And God tells him, says this horn had seemed great, uh, or he's talking about the little horn still, this horn that had seemed greater than the others and had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. As I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them. Something Revelation 13, 7 specifically tells us the Antichrist will do. That's how we know that little horn ties to this little horn here, all right? Because Revelation 13, 7 says the Antichrist will do that. Verse 22, and it says, until the ancient one, the Most High came and judged in favor of his holy people. Then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. Then he said to me, so this is God talking, all right? In verse 23, this fourth beast in the fourth world power that will rule the earth, it will be different from all the others. It will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. Its ten horns are ten kings who will rule that empire then another king will arise different from the other ten who will subdue three of them, this being the Antichrist. He will defy the Most High, that being God, and oppress the holy people of the Most High. That would be the Jewish people. This is all things Revelation says the Antichrist will do. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time. A time in the Bible means a year. If you went through Revelation, you would know this. Times... That means two years in a half time or a half year. So give, add those together, you get three and a half years, which is an important Bible number because we know the tribulation is seven years and we know that the halfway point is when the Antichrist, the first three and a half years, he's going to everyone fooled that he's the answer to all the world's problems. At three and a half years, he's going to say, guess what? Stop worshiping anyone but me. I'm God. He's going to put himself on a throne on a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and he's going to demand all the Jewish people worship him as well. So that's what it's talking about right there. Now, it's interesting to note, uh, or sorry, the, these 10 horns, again, they should sound familiar if you were with us with our study through Revelation, which is online. If you guys are watching at home or if you guys weren't with us, we just did it uh, first year of COVID. We did went through the whole book of Revelation. It's all on YouTube. Um, that'd be the best place to look at it. But I encourage you, if you want to know what Revelation means, you can go through the whole entire book. We went through it. And that would be a, a good way to recap if you weren't with us. But having said that, these ten horns should sound familiar because Revelation also talks about them. Revelation 13, 1 through 2 says, Then I saw a beast, the speaking of the Antichrist, rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns. With ten crowns, or the idea is kings and kingdoms, on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, that's speaking of Satan, gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. Now, there's reasons, you know, one thing I want to point out right away, I pointed out when we went through Revelation, 
Because people will say this and say, well, it's all symbolic of other things. Otherwise, you've got dragons that are real and all this. And what I always like to point out to people is the easiest way to translate the Bible is always starting from a literal perspective, all right? Because if you're not taking it literal, it can mean whatever the heck anyone wants it to mean. There's no other way to translate it accurately. Having said that, the Bible does speak figuratively and symbolically, but here's the thing it does. It tells you when it's doing that. So notice, like I was saying, this beast, it didn't say this beast was a leopard. It says it looked like a leopard. So it's it's adding descriptive terms to help you understand kind of attributes of the Antichrist. He's going to be like a leopard. He's going to be mean and angry and ferocious, you know, like that's kind of the idea that's trying to be conveyed. Again, I taught through this in a lot greater detail in Revelation. We don't have time tonight, but I'm just doing it so you can kind of see the parallels between Daniel 2 and these other verses to see how they all correlate exactly, okay? So it goes on in Revelation 17, um, starting in verse 3. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. Then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Okay, this is the Antichrist that had seven heads and ten horns, just like we saw in Revelation 13. The ten horns, just like we saw in Daniel 7. And blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead. Babylon the Great. Mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. So if you were with us in Revelation, you know again that this prostitute, this woman sitting on the beast, is speaking of this. When it says Babylon in the Bible, there was an actual literal place called Babylon but there's also, it speaks of the world system as a whole because Babylon was a pagan place that was totally of the world. It was full of carnality, carnality, immorality, um, idolatry. And so when it uses that, it also uses that term to describe the world system as a whole because that's what the world is like in continuing to always worsen it. It's not getting better, it's getting worse in those things. And so this chapter specifically is speaking of this world religious system and he uses the term like prostitute because that's what religion is to god god wants you and all of you and when you're going after other things of the world including other false religions you're cheating on him in a sense you're 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 like a prostitute and so um he it's it's speaking of this world religious system that's riding on this antichrist basically the antichrist is going to be the one that really comes out and says hey all religions are the same we're just we we just need to get along he's going to create this world religion system which you already see the beginnings of in the world today but in in the world ripe for it saying like yeah these christians they're a problem they think there's only one god and and, you know that that's what he's going to do and that's why this prostitute this world religious system is riding on the beast because the beast is going to kind of usher that into completion and really fool a good amount of the world all right now it goes on in verse 7 and it says, Why are you so amazed? The angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and the ten horns on which she sits. This beast you saw was once alive, but is it now? If you guys aren't familiar, the Antichrist is somehow going to be appear to be resurrected or, or come back to life from a fatal wound. And that's going to... He's faking Jesus, basically. That's what God's using him and people are going to see him as some sort of Messiah or Savior because of it. 
So he says, this beast you saw was once alive, but isn't now. And yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to the world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They all they also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns and the seventh is yet to come. But his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He's the Antichrist. He is like the other seven and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast or the Antichrist. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the lamb, that's Jesus, but the lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of all lords and the king of all kings and he is called and chosen or in his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Amen. All right. So again, a lot is talked about in those verses, but I think hopefully you guys would agree. It's clear to see they're all consistent in talking about this world empire that is yet to come that's going to consist of a 10 nation group of people confederation you want to call it or alliance that is going to come out of once was what the roman empire where it was somewhere in that vicinity which all of europe asia area type thing it's going to come out of there and it's going to be led by the antichrist okay in verse 44, and it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So this stone we see, God used to destroy all the other kingdoms of this earth and establish God's kingdom that will never be destroyed is none other than Jesus Christ. And it's crazy because the statue is is, is awe-inspiring as it looks, as big as it looks. It's weakest at its foundation, right? It's no match to God because God just hits it with his son and the whole thing just turns to dust and it blows away, all right? Now, we know this is this is reference to Jesus, the stone, because Peter actually says this, and Jesus himself does. In 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, G, uh, Peter says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. That's all of us, all right? We're part of God's temple. It goes on to say, what's more, you are his holy priest. Though through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given him. But those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble that don't believe and the rock that makes them fall. Okay? So Peter's talking about Jesus being a stone, all right? 
Now, Jesus himself also reiterates this in Matthew 21, 42 through 44. He says, then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scripture? He's talking to the religious leaders. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the Jewish people, given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit to Gentiles, because they were rejecting him at the time. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. Jesus is the rock of our salvation, the foundation of our faith. And all people are given the choice to either be broken for him or be broken by him. All right. And this biblical truth of what Jesus is going to do at his second coming is the biggest confliction or the biggest error I see in any eschatological view that believes God will make earth as it is in heaven or basically bring his kingdom here through his people changing the world systems, whether that's the political system, the economic system, the school system, whatever it might be, there is a theology out there that people think that somehow Jesus working through his people are going to change all these things for the better or basically we're going to usher in Jesus's return by not only making America great again but the whole entire world great again all right yet all you should have to look at is history to see that that's not going too well all right because if you look from the beginning of time to where we are now we are not getting better As shown by that statue, we are not getting better at governing ourselves. We are getting worse. We are, this world is getting worse as a result of sin. And the thing is, because we live in a fallen sinful world, and until Jesus returns, there's always going to be sin here. No matter how many people are saved, there's always going to be sinners living here. And the repercussions for sin, there is no way in ourselves that people can make this world better all right now our goal isn't to make it better it's to save people all right because that's the root of the problem sin and the only hope to getting rid of sin is to saving people but there's always going to be sinners in this world until the lord comes back and what we see here is that jesus is not coming back to convert the unrepentant kingdoms of the world because he's only going to come back at the time that he knows no one else will turn to him and he's coming back to crush the people that have rejected him and will never accept him okay and establish his rule and reign on this earth now this in no way alleviates us of the responsibility of seeking the betterment of this world and the community we live in just like jeremiah was told by god to tell the people when they were taken to babylon seek the betterment of where you're at because in its I forget what it says. It says like something like, in it being blessed, you will be blessed. Like basically. And how we seek the betterment, again, is not necessarily to, you know, promote Republicans or Democrats or, or whatnot. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote. You should absolutely do that. It's a right we're given here and you should vote according to God's principles. But having said that, our goal is very simple. And that is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Our mission never changes. That is our mission, and nothing should take away from that. And we do that by, as we've seen through the book of Acts, telling people the good news about Jesus Christ and praying that they receive it. Amen? That is our mission.
That is how we better our community here in Clatsop County. That is how we better our state of Oregon. That is how we better the United States. And that is how we better the whole entire world. Amen? All right? But if we're mistaken in thinking that changing Oregon or America or anywhere else in this world is somehow going to bring in the kingdom of God, we're sadly mistaken. Because the only one thing that is capable of fixing the mess we live in now that's constantly getting worse is Jesus coming back and destroying the enemy and, and, and everyone that is against him and taking the place of that image or humanity, if you will, and actually ruling things the way that only he can. All right. That is what is going to set this world right. And when he does that, we are going to be with him as he takes his rightful place on his throne. Amen. Amen. Something to get excited about. So. Jer, or, uh, uh, Daniel goes on to say, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So Daniel reiterates that it's God that has shown me your dream and has shown you what it means um, to give to you so that you can believe in him, basically. And it's it, the thing is, this exactly, like I've been pointing out, went down in history just exactly as he said, up to this point, up to this point. Those three empires, the four, or the four empires, the beginning of the Roman Empire, if you will, those four empires happened just like he said they would. And then we're in the process of seeing that revived Roman Empire happen. And we're going to talk about that, not tonight, because we don't have time, but uh, next time we do a prophecy update, we'll talk about some of the things we see happening in the world today that are the ongoing beginnings of this 10-nation confederation that's going to be led by the Antichrist. And it ends in verse 46, and it says, This king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. I would imagine King Nebuchadnezzar didn't bow down to many people, but apparently he's pretty impressed with what Daniel was saying and who he was speaking on behalf of, and so he bows down. And it says in verse 47, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, the sad thing here is, even though he acknowledges that God was the one that did this, he says, you're God. Because see, God wants you to be his God, all right? He wants, he wants you to say, my God. And so he wasn't revealing or he wasn't believing in God as his God at this point, which is what God would have loved for him to do. But he saw him as Daniel's God. And it goes on to say in verse 48, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the world, uh, of the whole province of Babylon and, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So basically God shows his favor upon him. And Nebuchadnezzar like raises him up just like Joseph, you know, in, in Egypt's court, like basically to a place of high high standing, like second to the king, if you will. And 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 for his willingness to basically follow God and do whatever he says in faith. And you see this continued pattern through his whole entire life. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. So like I said, next month we're gonna have a round table discussion. But here's the thing that I kind of just wanted to end on. Because, you know, it can be kind of um discouraging to kind of look at the current government we have and kind of see how things are happening in, in this kind of downward spiral. And when I say that, what I mean is, is away from God, away from truth, away from things that we know is right. 
and kind of like no end in sight, like almost like, man, it, it, it just feels really impossible. No matter what we do, it's not going to change the tide of things. And I really, you know, I, I believe we should vote. I should believe we should speak truth and, and do our best effort to, um, you know, lead people in the right direction to Jesus. But I do believe that um, in one way or another, things are always going to continually get worse because that's what the Bible teaches us. They're not going to get better until Jesus comes back. But this is our hope, all right? Because it doesn't matter who's in government. Or they, they might think they're running the show and they might think that what they're doing, they're calling the shots, but there's only one God that's running the show and there's only one that's calling the shots. And he's already told us how it's all going to end. And just like every other empire in this world has fallen eventually anyone that comes against him that's not what he wants he wants people to turn to him this is the age of grace but if they refuse to do that guess what a hundred out of a hundred of them are going to fall at his knees and bow down when he comes back all right and that's our king we're going to be with him and we're going to be ruling and reigning with him in what is going to be amount to perfect or perfection in, in the way God intended things to be because only he's the one that can set things that way. Amen? That's our hope. And as we see these things happening, as we see the beginnings of this, like, ten-nation confederation, as we see this move to, like, a world government, because people are, are thinking that, you know, as they move from these different form of governments, what they're coming to the conclusion now is, we can't have a bunch of different governments. We just need to be centralized, and we need someone to lead us. You know, that's the direction we're going. Well... That's what the Bible tells us, the direction we should be heading. So as we see that, we don't get scared. We don't get upset. We don't get freaked out. We do what Jesus says. We start looking up, knowing our salvation's near. We know the time's short. We know he's coming back, and we're going to be with him. Amen? Amen. All right. So hopefully we leave here with hope, not fear or anything. We just keep looking up. We keep looking at him to help to do our mission, take as many people as we can with us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much. For your word. I, I just was super stoked as I was studying this this week, just being reminded that our, the king is coming. Man, our king is coming back soon. And Lord, we know there's no time to waste. Just help us keep our focus in the right place. Help us keep it on you and, and, and being in your will for us, being your witnesses, looking to you to empower us to do that. We know as things grow darker, it's only easier for your light to shine through us because we know you have you have truth. You have hope. You have joy. There's all these things that we've experienced through you that people are not going to be able to find in any world government or any anything in this world. They need you. And so we want to be the ones to bring them that best news that they could ever hear, and that's the gospel, Lord. So empower your people to do that. May we be more on mission than ever before, knowing our salvation is drawing near, knowing we're going to be with you soon. So we, we, we want to be diligent to the very end, Lord. So help your people do that. In Jesus' name, amen.